0: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me Chris Smith and also with Georgia Mills.
1: This week we tow the line between life and death. We learn lessons from those who survived without oxygen for hours, discover how we could live as robots on distant planets and hear about a very special type of cryo-ambulance to prep you for long-term storage.
0: Sounds intriguing. Plus, the science stories that are making headlines, including how your finger length can predict your marathon time. And we'll be finding out why the Dutch have grown nearly a foot taller.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by
0: UKfast.co.uk.
1: It's not exactly Puccini, but do you recognise this song? That's the swooping song of a pair of La gibbons, which intrigued Durham University primate researcher Esther Clark. She set off to the Far East to study their elegant melodies, but then she noticed something a little unusual in the quieter, so-called hoo-hoo calls that the gibbons were making, as she explained to Kat Arney.
3: Originally I was interested in gibbon songs, which is what we know a lot about. They're very loud, long-distance communication between groups. But while I was following them in the field, I noticed that they were making all these very quiet noises as well. And everyone seemed to know about them as well, everyone who studied gibbons, but nobody knew what they meant and what they were for. And so this gave me the idea to try to record some of these quiet calls and try to analyse them. So this is more like kind of gibbon chit-chat rather than shouting. Exactly. This is the kind of talk, you know, amongst themselves, between close family members, It's not something you can hear from far away. What sort of things do you think the gibbons are trying to communicate with these close-range calls? It's interesting because they make them all the time. Um, So I subdivided them into about nine different contexts, and I was able to analyse calls from six of those where I had enough, big enough sample size. Um, And these are things like meeting a predator, for example, a ground predator like a clouded leopard or a tiger, or an aerial predator like an eagle. Also, when they're feeding and when they're travelling, so let's have a listen to some of these calls here. Which one? Which one's your favourite first? I have to say probably the raptor's my favourite because actually when I was in the field, the way I got them to make these calls was I had to show them fake predators. So I made my own raptor model and I stuck it up in the tree and waited for the gibbons to see it. And initially it was, I thought it was such a failure because they never seemed to make any noise whenever they saw it. And I thought, oh, they just don't believe it. All I heard was these tiny, tiny little... Noises. And I thought, oh gosh, it's just totally ridiculous. And then I was lucky enough to see them with a real eagle owl. And when I saw they made exactly the same noise, I realised I had stumbled upon their actual raptor response. So let's have a quick listen to that. How about another call when they when they notice something else? Okay, so I can give you another example when they see a different type of predator. Uh, when they see a ground predator, a tiger, or a leopard, it, this, the hoos are pretty much similar. They're louder. And they come much more quickly. They're more intense and they're a higher frequency. Let's have a listen to that one. You mentioned
4: that people have known about these kind of noises for a long time but never analysed them. I guess is
3: this really a kind of the language that they're using to talk to each other? I don't know if I'd use the word language but it is definitely showing a complex form of communication. It's not just random noises that they're making because we're finding... In every context, they're consistently using the right, as it were, type of who. So what's really interesting about it is that the who, we typically think of the who as one type of call, and this research has shown it splits up to at least six and presumably many more different subtypes, and that means that their vocal repertoire is much bigger than we thought. How did it feel to you when you first realised, wow, they're, they're using the same call for the same thing? Oh, that means Leopard. It was pretty exciting. When I showed them my model leopard, for example, they got quite scared, obviously, because they thought they really believed that it was a real leopard. That was a little um, disconcerting at first because they would would be throwing branches at it and defecating at it and and this sort of thing. But what's nice about it is when you're walking through the forest and you hear gibbons in the distance and you can tell immediately just from listening to them what's going on with them. And that's what I really liked. So you can eavesdrop on the gibbons. Yes, exactly. Yeah humans have a huge vocal repertoire but obviously we've
4: evolved from ape-like ancestors Mm. as have the gibbons when you think about human communication you can hear oh that's a man that's a woman you can hear different pitches in individuals voices you you have a different pitch slightly different sounding voice to mine is that the same for the gibbons do they have their own personal tone of voice
3: absolutely yes so you can um, individually identify gibbons by their by their tone of voice but also what's interesting is that males are pitched higher than females, and that's unusual among mammals uh, because typically males are lower pitched than females and also typically larger than females, and that's generally why. In gibbons, there's no real difference in, in size between males and females at all, so that's why it's quite puzzling that female voices are pitched so much lower. Why is it that gibbons have such a limited range of vocal noises whereas humans can make all kinds of wonderful singing, shouting, speech That's an interesting question. I think personally that gibbons have a lot more flexibility in their vocal tracts than we give them credit for. Um, I think that the actual act of singing allows them to use more of their vocal tract potentially than other non-human primates. This is something that still needs to be tested, but we already know that um, the way that gibbons produce um, their song is similar to the way a human produces a soprano song, for example. And I think that the more that we study them, the more we'll find that there is more flexibility, as much as language. No, I'm not. I'm not sure about that, but definitely more than we know about right now.
1: Real life, Doctor Doolittle, Esther Clark from Durham University. They're speaking with Katani.
0: Fascinating, that isn't it? Now, if you're planning on running a marathon anytime soon, rather than thinking only about your feet, you might also want to take a look at your hands, because new research shows that the relative lengths of the index and ring fingers. Can predict your race performance. Greg Jackson jogged over to see Cambridge University's Danny Longman to find out how.
5: Testosterone stimulates growth of the ring finger whereas oestrogen, uh, the female sex hormone, stimulates growth of the index finger. So if you have a relatively longer ring finger to index finger that would suggest you had a more masculine hormone exposure within the womb and were exposed to a higher concentration of testosterone.
6: I'm now looking at my ring and index <laughs> finger. And oh, they're quite close. My in- ring finger's not too far away from my first finger in terms of length. So that might infer what about me when it comes to long distance running then?
5: Well, unfortunately, it wouldn't actually be possible to measure just by looking. But if you were to have a relatively longer index finger relative to your ring finger, that would therefore give you a predisposition to be more successful at sports due to Um, enhanced uh, efficiency and development of your cardiovascular system, which could result in faster running times.
6: So how did you look at this? How did you test this hypothesis?
5: We attended a half marathon race in Nottingham. Um, The runners had just completed a half marathon, they were extremely hot, sweaty and tired and were entirely bemused by the idea of having their hands photographed. I can um,
6: imagine. Give me a flapjack and some Powerade would be my initial reaction, I think. Well,
5: that was the way we bribed them. I gave them some homemade flapjacks in exchange for a minute of time photographing their hands.
6: And what did you find? The people with the comparatively longer ring finger to their index finger, were they better runners?
5: Uh, Yes. So we found uh, that in both men and women, there was a strong correlation between the ratio of their fingers and their half marathon performances. Now this correlation was particularly strong in men and we found that men who were exposed to a lot of testosterone in the womb were on average nearly 25 minutes faster when compared to men who were exposed to only a little testosterone.
6: That's quite significant and what about women was it as pronounced?
5: Um, well there was still a significant relationship for women it wasn't quite as pronounced and um, women with higher testosterone exposure showed an improvement of approximately 11 minutes.
6: People with uh, short ring fingers in comparison to their first fingers, should they just (laughs) throw in the towel now?
5: Well, although we did find a very significant relationship between a relatively long ring finger, the amount of distance running ability that is explained by this genetic factor is absolutely minimal compared to the effects that you can achieve through training, through diet, through a healthy lifestyle. We really do want to stress that they should not put anyone off running.
6: So the longer your ring finger, the better the runner you are, perhaps. So what does that mean?
5: When these findings are considered within the context of our evolution, they suggest that endurance running ability may signal male reproductive potential and genetic quality to women.
6: Do you mean that women just would have found long-distance runners sexier?
5: From one point of view, but what this study is suggesting is that in ancestral populations, ability to run long distances in these populations where hunting was an important Uh, method of acquiring meat, could be one of these signals for portraying genetic quality.
6: What do you mean? People used to run down their food? I thought it was all bows and arrows.
5: Well, we're talking very much uh, a lot earlier in our evolutionary history here. Uh, This persistence hunting is a technique uh, by which hunters track and chase prey to the point of prey exhaustion. Uh, Tribes in the Kalahari in Africa and also the Tarahumara in northern Mexico are able to track down prey in this way. So what we're proposing and what our study is suggesting is that the ability to bring back the meat and to be a successful hunter displays to women traits that are desirable in a potential partner, such as intelligence to be able to track the animal, uh, athleticism to be able to catch it, but also generosity because this meat is then shared throughout the community.
6: And given this, that we would have been doing this sort of behaviour and still are in some places, it sort of seems that we've been evolved to run half marathons at least once a week. What's happened? Because most people can't run for 20 minutes without tearing a tendon or something terrible.
5: Well, one perspective to answering that question would be to say that our lifestyle today is not the lifestyle to which we have evolved to perform. Um, Humans evolved in much more stressful environments that we have these days. The technology that we have developed over the last uh, 50 years is increasing in pace exponentially and is actually shielding us from the environment within which we evolved um, so the environment in which we live today is a lot more sedentary. And as a result of that, um, the levels of fitness that we perhaps enjoyed in the past are not necessarily enjoyed by the vast majority of the population today.
0: Indeed, I demonstrate my fitness and prowess by running for the bus. And uh, my fingers come secondary. How, how long are your fingers, George? You've got a very athletic finger profile? Uh,
1: Unfortunately not. I have a very stubby ring finger.
0: (laughs) So marathon's not for you then?
1: No, I don't think so. That
0: was Danny Longman. He was from Cambridge University talking to Gray Jackson.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and also with Chris Smith. If you want to get in touch, you can email chris at scientist.com, find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists.
0: Now, still to come, we'll be finding out why the Dutch have grown nearly a foot taller in the last two centuries. And we're also asking you, would you like to live forever? Do send us your sentiments. So far, we've heard from Mike Sharp, who says, I would because the only thing that bothers me about dying is not seeing all the amazing advancements in technology. While Taylor Mallory says, nah, sounds boring.
1: Well, I might be on the short side. The Dutch are now the tallest nation in the world – and on average they've grown a staggering 20 centimetres in less than 200 years. Height is determined by a complex interaction of our genes and our environment, but the driving force enabling the Dutch to reach their current lofty height may be down to a higher rate of reproduction among taller men. This is according to a new study from Hert Stulp from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He gave the long and short of it to Kassani.
7: So we got our hands on a very large data set from the north of the Netherlands, and the north is the tallest part of the Netherlands, and we basically examined whether height, if we control for factors like education and income and health, was related to the number of children.
4: So that would tell you if there's some kind of natural selection, some kind of breeding effect
7: going on? Yes. If taller individuals would have more children, this might be part of the reason why uh, the Dutch become because if taller individuals have more children and we know height is highly heritable, then it uh, is plausible that sort of the next generation consists of children who become taller themselves.
4: And so what did you find when you looked at all this data?
7: We found that above average height men had higher fertility compared to their shorter counterparts. And in women we found that average height women had more children compared to shorter and taller women the effect of height was much stronger for men. So if we combine these two findings from men and women, we can conclude that it's very likely that natural selection would favour taller heights.
4: So that's kind of the, the family side of it. But obviously height isn't just down to our genetics. What do you think may be some of the other factors that are on top of this, this genetic background? What are some of the other factors that may be increasing height in the Netherlands?
7: In the Netherlands, it has been suggested that our uh, high rates of consumption of milk and cheese uh, have increased our, our, our heights and also uh, our good health care system and a good access to health care and very importantly, low uh, levels of inequality in our society has also been attributed to our height advantage.
4: So the Netherlands is a very equal society. There's not that much difference between the richest and the poorest.
7: Yes, less so than many other countries.
4: It seems very strange that something like inequality might be playing a role in height how could that be
7: well the reason is that if you are stressed for resources either in nutrition or maybe when you have a higher risk of diseases your body has to fight off these diseases or have to cope with the stress and that often comes at a cost of growth so we see sort of in poorer areas of, of, of society that growth is stunted so children do not reach their full full growth and Inequality has such an effect on height because if you have very unequal societies, this means that there will be a very large part of the population that is really stunted in their growth, whereas in sort of more equal societies, you find this less.
4: And do you think this could explain why some other countries that are very maybe similar to the Netherlands in terms of their diet, their environment, haven't attained this kind of astronomical height that the Dutch have?
7: I think that would be a very plausible explanation Definitely between the United States and the Netherlands, that that would seem a factor. And interestingly, it has been argued that 150 years ago, the Dutch were almost the shortest European nation. And at that time, the Netherlands was also much more unequal. And ironically, the Americans were the tallest Western nation at that time. And at that time, America was also much more equal than it is now.
4: You are an extremely tall man. You're well over six foot tall and towering above me. I'm extremely small. So when I go to, for example, medieval places, uh, they're kind of built for my sort of height. Have humans always got taller?
7: Indeed, if you look at historical times, we have become much, much taller. And we think, how much taller can we get? Um, But it's perhaps very interesting to also look a little bit further uh, into evolutionary time because there are fossils found hundreds of thousands of years ago that actually were estimated to have heights of about 190 centimeters, which is much taller than you and also many uh, others living in in Western countries. So it might very well be that our evolutionary heritage allows us for even more growth. Having said that, there is some evidence that the Dutch have stopped increasing in recent times, uh, which might suggest some biological limits to growth. And that said, we also live in time of relative financial recession. And it could very well be that when the environmental quality improves again, when things are looking up again, that the touch might even grow further and further, until a point that their, perhaps gravity will severely constrain further growth.
1: A tall story indeed. That was Hertz from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine.
0: Now, from very tall people to a race of much shorter individuals who are going to be providing a tourist attraction with a difference. It's a first of its kind. Scientists in South Africa are about to turn one of the world's most important fossil sites into a live laboratory where members of the public can look down into a cave where the two million-year-old remains of the members of a species of early human ancestor called Australopithecus sediba are being excavated by scientists. Professor Lee Berger, who discovered the site and is leading the project, took me to the location, which is near Johannesburg.
8: We're at Malapa, a site where in uh, 2008 my then nine-year-old son made the discovery of the first remains of what would turn out to be a new species, Australopithecus sediba, uh, a two-million-year-old early human ancestor. And this site since then has turned into one of the richest early human ancestor sites on the continent of Africa, if not in the world.
0: What actually is the site? What's here?
8: Well, what's here is an ancient cave. It was probably about 15 meters under the ground about two million years ago. The ground has eroded since then and collapsed, leaving us with just the contents. The cave is like a big swimming pool that you fill up with concrete, throwing bones intermediately into it. And in this case, some of those, in fact, quite a lot of them, were skeletons of this early human ancestor species. How did the skeletons get in there? We don't know. Uh, we hypothesize right now that there was some sort of trap or a in here. Maybe if you imagine a, a pool of water that they desperately needed to get to. Whatever was causing them to go in here, they were taking a great deal of risk to do it. And it appears that some of them were dying in the process. And how many
0: remains of these ancient human ancestors are there here?
8: Well, we don't know the answer to that. That's why we're building this laboratory over the top of it and we've begun excavation. But so far, what is exposed on the surface have been uh, two main skeletons and at least the remains of four other individuals that that we found so far. But uh, every time we open up a little bit of rock here or remove a little bit of dirt, we, we see someone new. We're introduced to another one of these people that died two million years ago.
0: Why have you elected to build the laboratory here? rather than take these remains to the laboratory.
8: The problem we have at Malapa is that as we began working here, we we realized this was no ordinary circumstance. We had to have an environment that we could protect those fossils that we exposed as we were working. And so that required us to build something very, very special here, a laboratory that would protect this remarkable fossil. We also then found out This wasn't just a normal type of rock that they uh, were contained in. It was a rock that was preserving organic material. And what is that? plant remains that are captured in it, seeds, things like that, even food particulates that are captured in the teeth around so we can see what they were eating. Maybe more remarkably, we think we've found fossil skin here too. So there was a lot of reason to protect this site, but we also needed a platform then to take off large pieces of the site to work on them in the laboratory. I wonder if, just so that people
0: listening to this can appreciate when you say protect this site, can you describe the the vista for people
8: that's right we're seeing in the middle of about an eight thousand hectare pristine nature reserve where there's really nothing in here except game I mean there are leopards around us there are zebra there are wildebeest all these type of animals here and it's a pristine environment we're seeing at the head of a valley that we can look northward and see out into the McHale'sberg Mountains with nothing but wilderness in front of us at that time so we had to build something very special here that I didn't want to be visible within the environment on the other hand. This is an important site. It's a site that people will be journeying to for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I wanted it to be spectacular. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, something that's invisible and spectacular. But that's why we went to so much design effort and ended up with almost an organic structure itself, almost a beetle-like structure that sits over this site. If you're a tourist, you can actually come and stand over us and watch us excavate
0: that the easiest way to describe this will be a bit like a wigwam that's open at the bottom around the covering. So it's keeping the weather off, it's keeping the sun and the rain off, and it means that you can work underneath this walkway because you've got a suspended walkway here. It's, it's what, a couple of metres, till three metres above the ground, isn't it? Right. Is that so that you're saying tourists? Are you going to bring people out here to look at you working?
8: Well, absolutely. Actually, within the next couple of months, you'll be able to come out here as a tourist and probably the only place on the planet you can see a discovery of a hominid live. Can you tell us
0: a little bit about the people, I say people in inverted commas, who would have been the inhabitants of this environment, who you're now finding two and a bit, maybe just under two million years later in this pit in the ground?
8: If you imagine we were standing here two million years ago and they walked out of... These trees around us at a distance, you would say, "Oh, those are humans. They walk on two legs, and until they got closer, you probably wouldn 't realize what 's bothering you, but something would bother you. One would be the most striking thing would be their height. They would probably only be standing about one point three meters tall they'd also have been more lightly built they would have been quite quite grassle, quite skinny. They had longer arms than we do, more curved fingers. So they're clearly climbing something. They also would have moved a little different. Their hips were slightly different than ours, and their feet are slightly different. So their gait would have probably been a more rolling-type gait that's slightly different from the more comfortable, long-distance stride we had. And as they got closer to you, you'd be struck by probably the most obvious thing, which would be their heads are tiny. If you imagine you take a man's fist and curl it up, that's about the size of their brain. And that would strike you. There'd be almost this pinhead on top of this small body. And that would immediately make you recognize that this is not a human.
0: Where do we fit into this story related to these individuals?
8: Well, We don't know, to be frank. It may be just a late member of what we call the australopithecines, the australopiths, which are often considered to be kind of the root branch just before our genus that would give rise to us. They do share a lot of remarkable uh, features that that only members of our genus have, like reduced dentition and the shape of the pelvis and, and some other features of the hand. Or they might be a good look at what the ancestor of the genus Homo would look like because they do carry a lot of those characters that we would have thought could have been the root of
0: our entire lineage. Lee Berger from the University of Witwatersrand showing me around the Malapa cave site near Johannesburg. This is The Naked Scientist with me Chris Smith and also with Georgia Mills and in this half of the program we're going to be exploring the issue of whether humans can achieve immortality. But is everlasting life for you? Philip said, hit the streets of Cambridge to canvas opinions. Would you
9: like to live forever? I wish, but it's not possible.
6: Um, no, I don't think
3: so.
2: No, I don't think so.
3: If I am healthy, yes. Uh, not forever, but for quite long. <laughs> no. Not really.
2: No, not
9: really, no. <laughs> Around 90% of the people in my tiny sample didn't like the idea of living forever. But why? And could I change their minds? Life would become a bit of a bore if you live forever. I'll see so many terrible things that wouldn't please me. It's just, it's just too long. If you could keep your health, would that change your mind?
4: Um, no, I don't think it would. Only if
3: it keeps my family going with me. I'd like to live forever if I could stay young.
9: So if science made that possible, you'd actually be really quite keen?
3: Yeah,
1: Definitely it seems that most of us don't want to live forever, although fear of the effects of ageing seems to be what's putting most people off. But the impact of modern medicine is changing things and increasingly people are being resuscitated successfully, sometimes hours after they've apparently died. So should this make us reconsider how we think about death? Could we continually resuscitate people throughout their life, defeat the maladies of ageing, and maybe one day live forever? And more importantly... Would we want to? It wasn't
0: all that long ago that if you were dead, you genuinely were dead. But that didn't stop people trying. In the 1700s, doctors attempted to revive drowned patients by tickling the backs of their throats with a feather, strapping them onto a trotting horse, even blowing smoke up the rectum, or even, for good measure, giving them a good whipping. Well... Reassuringly, today's methods of resuscitation are probably more comfortable and more effective, but as a result, the boundaries between life and death are becoming much more blurred. When is someone actually medically dead? With us is John Troyer. He's the Deputy Director of the Centre for Death and Society at Bath University. Hi, John. Hello. What actually is the definition of someone who has died?
10: The current definition is neurological or brain criteria and so when a person has complete or total brain death which includes the brain stem no longer operating or functioning then you are
0: dead. A lot of those things that you've drawn on there though John are very contemporary they make use of modern medical definitions and, and medical assessments of
10: people what did people used to think in the old days? For millennia, death was simply heart death. So when your heart stopped beating, you would die because there would be a lack of oxygen going through your system, and that would cause death. About the 1950s, it became understood that individuals could, in theory, be kept alive uh, in a kind of coma state. Uh, This idea that you could have a person who somehow seemed to be alive even though they were physically looking dead. And that was when we began to see through the 60s, 70s and 80s, particularly in the Western first world, the development of life support technology that could, in fact, restart a stopped heart or could, in fact, keep you on ventilation, artificial circulation and oxygen input so that you could, in fact, keep a person who seemed to not be fully functioning somehow alive. And of course, this is a moving definition, isn't
0: it? Because people were pretty comfortable that if you said someone was brain dead a few years ago, that meant they they just had no brain function whatsoever. But then on this program, Adrian Owen sat here and said, I'm about to publish a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where I am communicating with a brain scanner with people that no one's spoken to for five years or so because we thought they were
10: brain dead. That's right. And and the definition will most certainly change. I mean, we are using a sort of mid- let's say, mid-20th century concept of death right now. And if there's one thing that can be certain about the definition of death is that it will change as different kinds of sort of diagnostic tools become even stronger or new approaches to thinking through what is going on inside the brain when we think that a person... Is dead. I mean, one of the big questions right now is if a person who seems to be dead or is in a persistent vegetative state or has, uh, is responding to stimuli, is that person still that person? Meaning, is there still a conscious person there or is it a response that is a response, but it might be different than what we think of as actually being the person, him or herself? And these are, these are the bigger questions that we're getting into now. Thank you very much.
0: That's John Troyer from Bath University's, as you heard, Centre for Death and Society. Georgia.
1: In recent years, there have been a number of cases in which people have defied death by surviving for hours without oxygen. How can this be possible? The cells in our bodies need oxygen to survive. Without it, they begin to die and brain damage sets in within about five minutes. Yet these patients made a full recovery. What makes them so special? David Cassaret is a clinician at the University of Pennsylvania and has an interest in this field. He told me the story of a girl who had been submerged under the ice of a frozen river for over an hour but made a full recovery.
11: Michelle Funk fell into a creek and she was underwater for about an hour and when rescuers found her there was no sign of life, she wasn't moving, wasn't breathing, didn't have a heartbeat. But because she was young, only two and a half years old, they decided to try to resuscitate her. And they tried for another two hours. So that's three hours total. And at the end of that third hour, she finally began to have a faint heartbeat. A couple of weeks later, she left the hospital and a few years ago, she got married.
1: I've always heard that if your brain doesn't get oxygen for more than about five minutes, that's it, kind of game over. What happened here? How is she still alive?
11: I think some of it is probably the fact that she was young. The younger we are, the more plastic our brains are and the more of an insult they can tolerate. And the other secret probably uh, was that she was cold. And that probably protected her brain. We, we know from many experiments dating back to the 1700s that cold slows the metabolism. And the slower your metabolism is the less oxygen you use, and the less oxygen you use, the longer you can survive. And so increasingly now, researchers are starting to use cold to try to replicate that amazing success that that Michelle Funk experienced to try to figure out how we can use cold to extend the time that people can survive and do well without any oxygen or a heartbeat from five minutes to 50 minutes and maybe ultimately to hours or days.
1: Could this be taken much longer? How about a year?
11: That's sort of the holy grail, and that's what many researchers think. It seems uh, like a bit of a, a stretch right now, except for two things. Uh, one is that there are animals that go into a state of hibernation over the winter, and uh, they have their metabolism drops to sometimes 2 or 3% of, of what it is normally, and they can survive for months in a situation in which most of us as as humans wouldn't have a prayer of surviving. Humans don't hibernate, but since other animals do, they're interested in trying to figure out how those animals hibernate and whether maybe there's a way to to trick the human body into going into a situation of of hibernation. That could be very, very useful clinically. We're not there yet, but we might be someday.
1: I hate winter. Say I decided to hibernate and lock myself (laughs) in my freezer. I'm assuming it wouldn't work. Why will that not work for me? (laughs)
11: <laughs> um, well, please, please don't don't try that. The problem with just freezing yourself is twofold. Actually, there, there are probably lots of, of uh, problems. I'll just give you the top two. One is that ourselves don't like to be frozen. Um, if you've ever put a can of beer, for instance, in the freezer, and then forgotten about it the can bursts and you have beer all over the freezer imagine ha- that happening in, in all of the cells and in all of your body and the other problem is that freezing process doesn't really protect cells and protect physiology
1: i'm imagining now when i've put things like strawberries in the freezer before and then you take them out and thaw them and there's something a bit mushy about them is that kind of the same thing
11: it is we know of of one actually the first person who was was ever frozen and was unpacked a couple of years ago And there was pretty clear evidence of what could charitably be described as freezer burn. Imagine what happens to to strawberries that are frozen when they're not wrapped. And then imagine that on a human scale. And it's, it's really pretty gruesome.
1: So he's not waking up then? I don't
11: think so. Not anytime soon.
1: Where are we at with the science with this? What needs to be learned and what needs to be done before we can start seriously thinking about this?
11: Well, I think there there are at least two lines of of research. Uh, One which is advancing very, very quickly and is very exciting, and that is the science of hibernation research, or if you're a science fiction fan, suspended animation. That's the science of of trying to reduce somebody's metabolism, often to 1% or 2% of normal. Not freezing them, but really controlling the metabolism and inducing a state that looks a little bit like uh, artificial hibernation. The other element of science is what we talked about before, this possibility of actually freezing people. Alcor is freezing people right now, but that science, uh, although I guess it might have potential down the road, it's hard to imagine what the next steps might be because many people are being frozen, nobody's being revived, and we don't really know what works and what doesn't work. A lot of the folks who are being frozen after they die now are taking a leap of, of faith, so there's really not much science that's moving forward there, but there could be, maybe.
1: Dr David Kasseret from Penn University. If you want to find out more, you can read David's book, Shocked, Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead.
0: In theory then, cryopreservation seems possible. But how would it work in practice? David mentioned that there are some companies that offer the service. And with us now is Garrett Smith, who's one of the first UK residents to sign up for one of these schemes. And he's also the co-founder of a cryonics organisation. Cryonics UK have a specially designed ambulance that calls and prepares patients for shipping to a long-term preservation facility that's in America. He's with us now. Hello, Garrett. Hello. Well, first of all, tell us, some um, what is this ambulance
2: and what does it look like? Well, From the outside, it looks like... A- Pretty regular ambulance and inside a lot of the stuff is the same but there's an important piece of equipment which is a container that can hold ice and water so you can put the patient in there they will by this point have already have been put on a machine that compresses the chest and does CPR even though the person is legally dead the blood is continuing to be circulated so that that allows them to cool down quickly but then as they get down near zero one has to replace the blood with a medical-grade antifreeze, or cryoprotectant, as it's called. And this can has a slightly lower freezing temperature, so you can get them down below zero. It also replaces a lot of the water in the cells, so there isn't a sort of bottle of liquid in a freezer effect of expanding ice. The water comes out of the cells and... We would take patients down to dry ice temperature. It's about minus 60, isn't it? 78, I think. Then they're flown over to the States, or if you choose Russia, where you're brought down to liquid nitrogen temperature. And if it's all gone well, in the best of circumstances, you've actually got enough... Antifreeze in to stop ice crystals forming. So, the whole thrust
0: of this is by getting the body temperature right down really quickly, you reduce the rate at which any kind of decay or degradation of the tissue is going to happen so that they're then placed in this storage facility in liquid nitrogen at nearly minus 200 degrees C, which means that they should survive in inverted commas, in that pristine or as near pristine state as possible until such time as they can be, well, for want of a better phrase, reanimated. Is it possible, though, to store an entire human in this sort of way? Does the tissue not uh, do what happens to a raspberry or a strawberry if dumped in the freezer and just explode?
2: (laughs) A raspberry or a strawberry are, are not very good models for animals due to not having a blood supply. Because of the blood supply, you can get very close to every cell in the body and replace, as I was saying, the the water with antifreezes, which stop crystals forming. The biggest thing but, so but has far... has anyone th- actually
0: done this with, say, if I took a hamster or a mouse and I anaesthetised it and replaced all its body water with one of these cryoprotectants and put it in ultimately liquid nitrogen and then later thawed it out? Can I come up with a viable mouse that way?
2: At the moment, not a mouse. A kidney has been done... Um, and it's a rabbit kidney, so it's not going to be that big a kidney, but it is a proof in principle of it, of being able to do it. So why hasn't anyone succeeded
0: with a whole organism like a mouse or a hamster or, or even something bigger?
2: When I say no one's done it with a hamster, as long as you don't get too cold, it has been done with a hamster. Audrey Smith at the Mill Hill Institute did it in, in London, did it in the 1950s. There always seems to be someone stopping the research. It's very frustrating because I really without much research it could be done properly and much better because
0: obviously that's going to be fundamental to this working because if uh, the current techniques are being employed but you can't do this on an animal model then there's not much hope for say you as the as the UK's first person to sign up
2: one aspect of it is it is research and I entered it knowing fully that it wasn't done perfectly and the situation has improved a lot they're now doing vitrification rather than freezing which is a great improvement and they couldn't vitrify kidneys when I first signed up so it's an ongoing research and I joined in order to support the research and this is why I'm advocating we really should do more so if you're going to make me wait a thousand years and as long as I'm kept in good condition I'm willing to take the chance. I was listening to a program the other day where they were talking about bringing back the dodo using 3D bioprinters and I was thinking, you know, if they can if they bring back the dodo, I'm going to be easy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's Garrett Smith. Thank you very much. He's from Cryonics, UK.
1: Cryonics might be one way to live forever, but another method which has been thrown into the limelight thanks to President Obama's brain mapping project is brain emulation. This is the idea where a person's brain could be copied, perhaps neuron for neuron, and uploaded onto a computer... In this form, that person could hypothetically live forever. Michio Kaku is a theoretical physicist who's been looking into the possibilities and thinks this might be achievable within perhaps a generation or two. Hi, Michio. Hello. To start off with, could you take me through the various techniques? How would you copy someone's brain? Well,
12: the digital era has made possible several scenarios. The simplest one is to create a library of souls whereby you take a person like Winston Churchill and calculate the total sum total of their credit card transactions, their videotapes, interviews, everything. You construct a hologram, which then gives you a reasonable facsimile of having a conversation with Winston Churchill. And as more digital information is compiled, your simulation gets better and better. So the library becomes a library of souls. But the big money, The big money, as you mentioned, is this billion-dollar initiative by the European Union and by President Barack Obama to create a connectome, or a map, a map of all the neurons of the brain, which in some sense will give us a duplicate of our dreams, our personality, our soul, our soul reduced to information. So in the future, we're going to have two disks. The first disk will be the genome by which our genes can be reproduced forever. But the second will be the connectome with all the neural pathways of the human brain. And then when you die, your genome and your connectome live forever. And so this is a form of digital immortality.
1: We know how to map out someone's genome. How would you map out their brain, their connectome?
12: Well, there's several ways to do it. First is the slice and dice approach, which is very crude, very primitive, whereby you use a microscope and a razor blade and slice the brain. That's been done with fruit flies, for example, but it's very tedious. More recently is the optogenetics program coming out of Stanford University, whereby we can actually look at neural pathways for certain behaviors by lighting them up with the flashlight. This is amazing, using flashlights to basically uh, work out the neural pathway to certain behaviors. And so we think that it's gonna take many decades, but we will have a connectome with all the neural pathways of the human brain. And then the question is, well, who wants to live inside a computer? Rather boring, right? Living forever inside a computer. Yeah, But, no, you, thank see, you. but you see, we will create surrogates. Surrogates are robots without a mind that have perfect bodies, that can live on Mars, Jupiter, and are handsome, beautiful, gorgeous, immortal. And then the connectome of the computer communicates with the surrogate. So it's as if you are inside the robot. And so this could be the future of space exploration, that our connectome will basically drive mechanical surrogates, will be superhuman, We'll be able to live on uh, Jupiter and Mars and different kinds of hostile environments and we'll be able to explore the universe in this way, being immortal.
1: So once we've nailed this technique, we could just beam our brains anywhere in the galaxy, I suppose?
12: Right. In fact, I say that even in the next century, consistent with the laws of physics, because I am a physicist, we'll be able to put the connectome on a laser beam and shoot the laser beam into outer space. It would take us one second to go to the moon, about 20 minutes to go to Mars riding on a light beam. And on Mars and on the moon would be a surrogate. And so you would basically live your life as a robot on the moon, Mars, or wherever. And so uh, this is the cheapest, most effective way of space travel. Forget the booster rockets, forget weightlessness, forget cosmic rays. Think
1: about riding consciousness on a light beam. I love this idea of becoming a superhuman robot that can fly around in space and everything. But, well, firstly, would it still be me? Would it not just be a copy? And secondly, what about all the things that make us human, like having sex, eating? Would they just disappear?
12: Uh, no, you'll be able to have super sex, you'll be able to have uh, different kinds of phenomena and sensations that you can only dream of today, and you'll do it in robotic form. Now the question is, is that really you? Well if you define you as basically the wetware of your brain and the software that governs the wetware, then of course, then when you die, that's gone. That's not going to come back. But this is a very reasonable facsimile of you with all your memories, all your personality quirks, everything being digitalized and becoming immortal.
1: Has there any science been done yet that might imply that this could actually happen?
12: Uh, Yes, on a primitive scale. Uh, We are children, children when it comes to being able to map the brain. But with optogenetics, we've been able to actually look at the neural pathways for certain kinds of behaviors. Uh, This was once considered far beyond anything we can do. And we do it. We use genetic engineering to modify the neurons of a certain pathway so that when you turn on a flashlight, it fires. It fires. And by firing, you can actually trace the pathway for certain kinds kinds of behaviours. With a flashlight, you can make a mouse, for example, chase its tail or a fruit fly take off. And this has changed the entire scientific landscape. Uh, In fact, the Nobel Prize will probably go eventually to the inventor of this technique because it has been a game changer.
1: Well, I look forward to becoming an immortal space jumping robot. Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely amazing. Michio Kaku, who's the professor of theoretical physics at the City College of New York.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Georgia Mills.
0: Now, with a growing population of 7 billion already and a huge pressure on resources, fossil fuels and food, can we actually cope with an immortal population? Well, still with us are John Troyer, Garrett Smith and Michio, who you were just hearing. So we thought we'd bring them all together and ask their opinion. Um, Garrett, first of all, you've actually signed up for this whole concept of cryonics. Why are you for the idea?
2: I don't particularly want to be vitrified or suspended. That's, you know, really my last ditch thing to do. Um, I just like being alive and I want to stay alive.
0: I mean, the only thing that's bothering me, uh, Michio, uh, with what you were saying is that, uh, fine, you end up in a computer and you exist. Aren't you going to be sort of stuck with 21st century thinking?
12: Uh, Well, one danger of immortality is stagnation, that uh, old thinking may begin to dominate all of society. That's why we have to make sure that we encourage creativity, innovation, youthful youthful kind of thinking or else we will in fact uh, stagnate as, as a consequence but uh, think of all the uh, the benefits that we could have one thing that separates us from the animals is that we have a culture and that is that we can hand down information from generation to generation mama bear does not teach baby bear how to how to hunt in the forest other than by behavior there's no culture among animals and however this culture will be enriched once we have the ability, not just of information, but the entire personality being preserved. And so I think that society, instead of stagnating, could actually benefit, uh, benefit from this. And we could, uh, our culture will be greatly enriched once we have this kind of digital immortality.
0: John, are you comfortable with this idea over the whole preservation of the body? Because, of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are 7 billion plus people on Earth. We're expecting that number to exceed 10 billion by mid-century. Surely preserving ourselves in silico in a computer is better than preserving ourselves in the flesh.
10: There's a key issue for both, let's say, methods of preservation, which is both the revivification or the bringing back, but also then the long-term support And then how basically do you keep everything from degrading? How do you keep the the information itself from from breaking down over time? Well, the other
0: important point is, I, I suppose, Michio, is there not a danger if you exist as a computer program that someone might infect you with a computer virus?
12: Uh, Yeah, there's always a danger of hacking as well. What happens if somebody hacks into the the memory of an Albert Einstein and and corrupts it, so all of a sudden you get nonsense coming out? Uh, That's always a danger. However, I think the risks are far smaller than the benefits. Uh, We're talking about enriching our culture. So there you go, Garrett. Uh, It looks like you're going to have to preserve
0: yourself until such time as you can exist in a computer program.
2: Um, I don't think that an animatronic Winston Churchill would really be Winston Churchill. So I really do plan, if it all works out, to come back as me, as a biological me. And I think if I could agree, whilst I don't want to be a robot, and I know a lot of people that don't, um, I would like to agree with Mitchie on on how um, people living longer, because whether or not people are Christ-preserved, the anti-aging research will go on. Um, One of our problems in the world is that people forget what the history and what has happened before. So, of course, they're doomed to repeat it. But that's what Michio is sort of saying, that well, no, if I mean, we
0: have this sort of collective knowledge, then actually we can have Winston Churchill on tap or Einstein to help us solve problems and uh, and then we won't actually arrive at that situation. Do you agree, uh, Michio?
12: Uh, Yes, I agree, because I think, as, as I mentioned, what separates her from the animals is the culture that we hand down generation after generation, but why do we have to lose that generation when they die? All that wisdom and knowledge essentially evaporates when people die. Why should it be that way? Why not benefit from this? And so we go, why do we have libraries? We have libraries because we hope to benefit from reading about biographies of the lives of famous people. But why not actually interact with these famous people? Now, at first, of course, the first generation of the Library of Souls is not going to be very good. However, as the decades go by, once we have the entire connectome, then it will be indistinguishable the library of souls will be indistinguishable from the real thing. No experiment can differentiate between an Einstein and the Einstein that's been digitalized because the connectome is identical.
0: Michio, thank you very much, and that's where we must leave it. Thank you very much to Michio Kaku, John Troyer and Garrett Smith.
1: And finally, Philip Garshead's been taking a look at a particularly juicy question of the week sent in by Dennis.
9: Why are right pears juicier. I didn't want to get pipped to the post so to figure it out I enlisted the help of our hand-picked expert plant scientist and researcher at Cambridge University Sonia Dunbar to find out why fruits ripen in the first place.
13: Fruit ripens to make it more appetising to creatures so that they will eat it and spread the seeds of the plant.
9: The animal gets a nice nutritious meal whilst the plant gets its seeds carried far away inside the animal before, of course, being deposited in some first-class manure. Lovely. But what changes have to happen to our pear to change it to a lovely, sweet and tasty fruit?
13: The rest of the plant supplies the fruit with a sugar called sucrose. Some fruits, like grapes break this down into two sugars called glucose and fructose. This is why fruits like grapes need to be left on the plant until they're fully ripe. Other fruits, like our pear, store the sucrose as starch, which is not very sweet, and they then break it down into glucose and fructose later on. That's why a pear gets sweeter just sitting in a fruit bowl.
9: But why does it get squishier as well?
13: The texture of the fruit changes because of three enzymes called pectinase, cellulase, and lipase, which together break down the fruit cells. Firstly, pectin is the material that helps glue the cells together. You might have used it to make jam. Pectinase unglues the cells. The second enzyme, cellulase, breaks down a material called cellulose, the stuff that makes cell walls stiff. Lastly, a third enzyme, lipase, also lends a hand by breaking down the fats in the cell membrane. Combined, these enzymes make the fruit's cells leakier and less tough, so the fruit is softer and juicier.
9: The plant goes to all that effort of breaking down the cells in its own fruit to make it tastier for me to eat. Now that's what I call service. But how does our pair know when it's time to ripen?
13: It's all controlled by a plant hormone known as ethene. This is a gas which triggers the production of the enzymes I've just mentioned.
9: In fact, we can even use ethene to control when fruit ripens ourselves. That's how we can import fruit from the other side of the world, yet have it arrive on our shelves as if it's just been picked. And you can also try this at home.
13: Ripening bananas produce a lot of ethene, which is why you should put unripe fruit next to them to speed up ripening. So, ripe pears are juicier because the cells are leakier and their contents sweeter. Enjoy.
9: Thank you to Sonia for that perfect explanation. Next time, we'll be answering this question sent in by
1: Harry.
11: How are computerised voices generated?
1: Do you know how electronic voices are generated? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com forum.
0: That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Greg Jackson for production and do join us next time when we have a special Q&A programme. So get your thinking caps on because we'll be taking your tweets and posts. So if you want to know how many organs you can donate and realistically still remain alive or what, given that once in a blue moon comes around only every so often, what a blue moon is, we've got the answers for you. You can send them in to chris at com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. That's it for now. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye.
11: Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.